love you put in the hearts of your people, uh, this picture of uh, protection, rescue, love, concern, care, how we pray that such grace would be lavished into the hearts of all of our countrymen here in this country so needed, the knowledge of Christ, bending the knee to his lordship, submitting to his wonderful ways, having our hearts radically changed by his spirit. Oh, Lord, have mercy on our land and send comfort to the fearful. Send your presence to those who are profoundly concerned and anxious. Use these crazy things, such, such disconcerting things, use them to awaken folks to their great need of you and show yourself utterly, beautifully sufficient for all our needs. Have mercy, bring revival. Now teach us by your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, gang. Can I make a real quick announcement, sir? Please, Terry, yes. Um, on the theme of community, uh, next Saturday morning at 9.30, starting at 9.30 through the middle of the day, uh, I'm organizing a service project over at Eileen Dowd. Eileen is one of our widows of the church, and she needs a lot of work around her house. She has a tool shed, a back porch, and a, ba and a basement. Really more, it's a cellar that needs uh, cleaning up. She's getting a, we're getting a dumpster. The deacons are helping somewhat, uh, but I'm putting an, all, an APB out for everybody. Uh, if you're available and like to serve one of the widows of our church next Saturday morning, 930, your address is in the uh, church directory. Thank you. Thanks, Terry. Hey, somebody out there needs to mute. Thank you. Good. Let's go to screen share. Let's see if Mike did it right this morning. Oh. Did Mike do it right? He did it right! Don't faint! So guys, as promised, <clears throat> we're going to do a little excursus on salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, all to the glory of God alone. Do you recognize that as the solas of the Reformation? These solas actually are in banners all across the worship space of our church building. Uh, we're doing this because there is, seems to be a problem for some people looking at the, uh, our doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, Christ alone. Seems to be a problem that, um, that if you need some muting out there, thanks. Uh, salvation by grace through faith sounds too easy. People will abuse it. It will unleash the floodgates of licentiousness. Apparently this is what the Roman Catholic Cardinals told Luther when he began to share the gospel of justification by faith alone through Christ alone. And here's, here's the way this thinking goes. Well, since it doesn't matter what I do and I'm saved by grace alone, why not just go on living as I want to? Grace will always cover my sin. Uh, now, just curiously, who would think that way? W what would put forth that idea? Sounds like sin to me. Sin likes sin. So this is the thinking of sin in you. If you've ever thought this, and every serious Christian has thought this, we're tempted by antinomianism. That is sin speaking. 
So the concern is the gospel of pure grace then may become licensed to sin and produce a cavalier attitude toward righteousness and holiness. Free grace may be a disincentive to pursuing godliness. And look, that there's some element of reality in that, right? Look again at the statement, well, since it doesn't matter what I do, I'm saved by grace alone. I'm going to call that the case of the confused premise. That's a terrible starting premise. It doesn't matter what I do. The premise should be, I'm saved by grace alone, and those who believe that, would they then conclude it doesn't matter what I do? Well, you know in your own experience that when you the, great, the gospel of grace through Christ alone grips your heart, your first thought is, it doesn't matter what I do. Your first thought is, how do I love and serve and please and obey this wonderful Savior? So, we want to answer this concern. And this concern is answered this way. This is a legitimate concern, one Paul anticipates in Romans 6, um, and is raised by the uh, brother of Jesus, James, in James chapter 2. The technical heresy here, it to be avoided, is antinomianism. That's a Greek word, compound, anti-against, namas the law, or in the vernacular, cheap grace. You may have heard it called easy believism. Just as the true gospel seeks to avoid the error of legalism, Defined as Jesus does his part, I must do mine, which has man contributing to his justification where no contribution is necessary. The merits of Jesus are absolutely sufficient to make you righteous before God. So the true gospel avoids antinomianism. You may be familiar with the church father Tertullian. He was quoted as saying that Christ was crucified. The gospel is abused between two thieves. On the one hand, legalism. On the other, antinomianism. So a careless walk with God is not the goal of salvation. In other words, God doesn't save you so that you don't care about the way you live. The goal of salvation is, as we saw, Romans 8.29, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. He predestined you to become conformed to the image of his son. We are saved, as we saw last week, for good works that we should walk in them that God prepared beforehand. The whole case Paul is making in Romans 6 is we're now in union with Christ, free from sin's dominion, in union with Christ, slaves to righteousness. And we saw last week that God chose us before the foundation of the world in Christ to what end? To be holy and blameless before him. Jesus warned, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father, Matthew 7, 21. Notice how James addresses this issue. He says, <clears throat> what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have, work, that have works? Can that faith save him? This is a really important question. He wants to know, he wants you to know, do you have the faith that saves you? That tells you right away that there's a type of faith that doesn't save you. There's a counterfeit, an aberration. So by now we ought to know how James will answer. When he asks what good is it, his answer is it's no good and will do you no good. That kind of faith. The faith that says, I believe but I have no works. He, he says, can that faith save him? Answer, absolutely not. And we all know the principle. What you say is one thing, what you do is another. Profession of faith is one thing. Possession of faith is another. So we know from the context, if you go back and read the beginning of James chapter 2, James continues his admonition to show concern for the poor. 
So here he now supplies a simple, vivid, compelling, relatable illustration. You can relate to this, particularly if you're the guy in need. So here's sort of what you might call a case study. And remember the, the overarching principle that's going to govern this. It isn't stated, but it's clearly throughout the Bible. And that is sin ruins people. Sin is bad for you. Worst of all, sin eclipses the glory of God. You can't be human without seeing the glory of God. Sin is bad for you. The converted person believes that to increasingly uh, deeper and deeper degrees. So here's his illustration. If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So to say, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, acknowledges the need. You can't say to somebody, be warmed and filled, if you don't realize they don't have a coat. They're hungry. They need food. And this phrase, go in peace, was a Jewish way of saying, goodbye. That's possibly code for See you later, and don't bother me with this again. So you see the need. You fail to supply the needs, what's needed for the body, clothing and food. And what's the result? James says, this does no good. So now you know what good is. It's giving what is needed. Your notion of goodness is dead because it doesn't produce clothing and food. Here's the point. A cold, stingy, cruel heart that would say that, see somebody in need and say, see you later, don't call me cannot be the dwelling place of a compassionate, generous God. That's the point. Now, let's state an assumption here. James teaches the same gospel Paul teaches because the Bible has one author and one central message. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but not by faith, which is alone. That's what we were trying to tease out last week from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Don't forget that Paul and James minister in somewhat different contexts. I can do that. Hey, I have to break in. Mute, please. Thank you. They know that you can do that. Mute, please. Paul is concerned with the legalism of the Pharisees. That's why you read Paul. It's grace not works, grace not works, grace not works. James here is concerned with, as we've seen, anti-Numanism. He's concerned that true faith always produces fruit. Both them, both of them, James and Paul, were at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. They both heard Peter say, and didn't correct Peter, God cleansed the Gentiles' hearts. Hey, somebody out there needs to mute. Thank you. God cleansed the Gentiles' hearts by faith. How did he cleanse the Gentiles? By faith. And Peter also said, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So both James and Paul were there. They heard these affirmations of the gospel. So what we're going to see is they use the word justify in two different senses. Don't forget that Jesus identifies both of these heresies when he tells in Luke 18 the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Here's a person who thinks the Pharisee He's right with God because of what he does. That view is condemned. 
And again, we saw in Matthew 7, 21, Jesus condemning antinomianism. Whoever says to me, Lord, Lord, but doesn't do the will of my Father, that person cannot expect to go to heaven. So James could not be more clear. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Why? True faith is worked in us by the Holy Spirit. Remember, we are generated, regenerated, the Spirit comes to our dead hearts long before we ever did anything. And when the Spirit comes to your heart, he, he makes a new heart. It's the circumcision of the heart. It's regeneration. He takes out your heart of flesh. Excuse me, stone. He gives you a heart of flesh. That heart, the evidence that the Spirit has done that, is faith you trust. You want to trust the Lord. You believe in Jesus. And the Spirit also works in you the grace of repentance unto life. Both of these, if you read our confession, are works of grace given to us by the Holy Spirit. Saving faith and repentance unto life. So repentance unto life changes you. It produces real fruit. Let's look at the identifying flaw. Verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. <clears throat> Notice that James is saying what is impossible. It's impossible, according to verse 18, to show true faith apart from works, because you only have words. He's saying, I can show you my faith simply by pointing to my works. Now, caution. Works by themselves, without faith, are also no good. That would just make you a humanist. It would make you a good religious person. So simply pointing to works in and of themselves isn't the gospel, because these are works that come as a result of your salvation. They are works done out of gratitude for your salvation. So we could label these faith works, showing you my faith by my works. Now, if you say, I have faith, but I have no works, theologians call this mere intellectual assent. It's all head knowledge, but no heart transformation. Knowing the facts about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection without a life change merely qualifies you to be a demon. The demons know that Jesus died on the cross. The demons know that... Jesus rose from the dead. The, Jesus, the demons know that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling all things for the good of his people and his own glory. The demons know that. It doesn't do them any good. So he says the demons believe that God is one. They, I, was it C.S. Lewis who said that, that the, uh, the doctrine of hell is very orthodox. They know what God is like. But they don't believe in God meaning they don't place their trust in him, as does saving faith. So neither James nor Paul calls that true faith. So you have two aberrations of saving faith. One is mere intellectual assent, all head knowledge, no heart change. The other you could call mere temporal faith, and that's trusting God, real faith, real trust, for temporal matters only. This is the person who says, I really believe God will keep me safe. I pray and I really believe God will give me health. I pray and I really believe I have faith. God will provide for me. God will bless me. Those are good things. 
but that's only regarding temporal things. That kind of faith will not get you to heaven. The faith that makes you right with God is saving faith, and that is trusting that God in Christ will make you perfect for his presence. So isn't that amazing? There are people who can trust God for a lot of good things. That doesn't get them to heaven. So two aberrations, mere intellectual ascent, all head knowledge, no heart transformation, and temporal faith. Should we have temporal faith? Of course. But why do we trust God? Ultimately, all this temporal faith flows from a heart that is trusting him for salvation, for justification. Now here's how theologians put this. They put it into a formula. Saving faith has three elements. The Latin is noticia, ascensus, and fiducia. Let's break that down. Noticia, knowing the facts. What are the facts? There's a man named Jesus Christ who gave himself for sinners by dying on the cross for them and raising from the dead. Those are facts that are purported to be at the center of Christianity. A census is believing that they are true. So you can have a lot of people say, oh yeah, I understand that Christianity teaches that Jesus died and rose again from the dead. I just don't believe that. So you can have noticia without a census. We're to know the facts about Jesus. By the grace of the Holy Spirit, we believe they're true, but that only qualifies you to be a demon. Noticia and a census and fiducia, which is trust. He died for me. Jesus Christ died on the cross. That's a fact. I believe that fact is true. And something happened for my salvation when I, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, put my trust in that death as that which, that only cleanses me and justifies me before a holy God. Okay? Three elements to saving faith. Knowing the facts, believing they're true, and trust. So, for example, uh, if you studied Islam, you could say, I know Islam teaches that Muhammad is God's prophet, etc., etc. That's one of the facts of Islam. I don't believe that fact. I mean, I, I know that Muslims teach that. I understand that fact. I don't believe that Muhammad is God's prophet, and therefore I don't put any trust in it. So, that's... And that's, people can also look at Christianity that way. If you have fiducia, this is a grace work in you by the Holy Spirit. It's a miracle to trust. Glory to God. So James uses two examples from the Old Testament to illustrate the point. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? He gives two examples. They couldn't be more different. Abraham, a high-profile, upright Jewish man, Rahab, a lowly, immoral, she's a prostitute, Gentile woman. You couldn't have reached farther across the spectrum to get two people that are more different. Here's what he says. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, and he quotes from Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now you can see why this on the surface looks potentially troubling to those of us who believe in justification by faith alone, 
But of course, we believe in justification by faith alone, but not by faith, which is alone, which we believe James is teaching here. And then Rahab is described this way in the same way as verse 25 was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them on another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So these examples prove that true faith produces fruit. In Abraham's case, the fruit of obedience of offering up Isaac. In Rahab's case, the fruit of risking her neck to harbor the Israelite spies. Neither Abraham nor Rahab, and they're both examples of sovereign grace. They're two, both people who are just sort of out in nowheresville, and God obviously swoops in and rescues them without them asking. Both of them were saved by these, uh, neither of them were saved by these heroic deeds. These deeds merely evidence the presence of saving faith already in their hearts. So James tells you when Abraham was saved, namely Genesis 15, 6. He quotes directly from it in verse 23. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. So when James wants to locate the conversion of Abraham, he goes to Genesis 15, 6. And this is what the New Testament believes, that Abraham was converted. He believed God. He was counted as righteousness. The moment God said, look at the stars, Abraham looked at the stars, and God said, so shall your descendants be. And Abraham said, if you say it, I believe it. And it was that moment God said, you're righteous in my sight. Paul also cites Genesis 15, 6 in Romans 4, 1 through 5 as proof that Abraham was saved by faith alone. So when James writes, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Obviously, he's referring to the incident when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, and that's recorded in Genesis 22. So the tricky part understanding this is how James uses the word justification in verse 21 of Abraham and in verse 25 of Rahab. There's the word justified. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works? So if you take same Greek word, if you take justification here to mean to be declared righteous, right, saving faith justification, then James clearly contradicts himself as well as Paul, and the word of God is confusing and erroneous. But let's give the biblical writers the benefit of the doubt. James does not mean Abraham was declared righteous when he offered up Isaac. I mean, how could one good deed possibly compensate for a lifetime of sins? And how good do you have to be in order to make a claim on God's holy presence? James isn't saying there on Mount Moriah when, I, when uh, Abraham was willing to offer up Isaac in that act of obedience. That's the moment God said you're absolutely righteous in my sight. James is not saying that. No, he had just quoted in, in uh, chapter two, uh, here, here in our text in verse 23, he just quoted Genesis 15, 6, as Paul does two places in Paul's writings. Romans 4 and Galatians 3. I'm just going to read them because they're important because all, in all three of these places, uh, Abraham's salvation is annexed to the same Old Testament verse, Genesis 15, 6. Romans 4, Paul says, What should we say then was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And the one who does not work, here it is, this is the believer in Jesus, but who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then Paul goes on to quote Psalm 32 to show David is saved the same way. Believing God's promise is what justifies him. And it also comes up again for Paul in Galatians 3.6. Does not he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham, here it is, Genesis 15.6, believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that those of faith are the sons of Abraham. So, so James is doing all of this to illustrate Abraham's salvation. Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. James uses the word justification not the way Paul does in those other places in Romans 4 or Galatians 3. He uses it the way Jesus does in Luke 7.35, quoting Jesus, wisdom is justified by her children. So there are two different ways to use the same Greek word. One is to mean to be declared righteous by God. The other simply means vindicated. So justification in the context in Luke 7, 35, simply means to be vindicated, validated, or here's proof, the demonstration of the proof of a prior claim. Abraham claimed to trust God. What's the proof of that? He was willing to offer up Isaac. <clears throat> So James maintains, to combat the antinomians, that Abraham's faith, by which alone God declared him righteous, proved genuine, was vindicated. James's faith was evidenced to be authentic when? When he offered up Isaac. This work of obeying God's command to offer up his son evidenced a true faith in Abraham, showed it to be mature or perfected. In other words, he fulfilled the expectations created by the pronouncement of his faith. When God declared Abraham righteous in Genesis 15, 6, it came with an expectation that that was a faith that would bear fruit. It would show itself to be real, and it did in Genesis 22 when Abraham said, God, if you want me to offer up Isaac, I am willing to do that. So, he fulfilled the expectations created by the pronouncement of his faith just as the fruit on a tree show it to be perfected or it reached its purpose, right? It proves to be an apple tree when? When the apples appear and the apples uh, did not produce the tree, the tree faith produced the apple work. So you could have an apple tree in your backyard right now. Guess what? No leaves on it. It's just all sticks and bark. By the end of July, you'll have apples. That's when you know it's an apple tree. It really is an apple tree now, but it shows itself, it reaches its purpose, it reaches its perfection, its maturity when the apples appear. That's why James says in verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. So you can expect your faith to grow, you can expect your faith to mature, you can expect your faith to continue to produce more and more works. That is a reasonable expectation for a growing Christian. Faith isn't dead, it's alive. So here's James's 
most potentially alarming statement. Luther didn't like the epistle of James because of this verse. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Of course, Luther was boom, boom, faith alone, faith alone. Now, he didn't believe it was faith that was alone. He believed in justification by faith alone, but not by faith which is alone. He believes the doctrine I'm teaching today. I'm reiterating what he taught the rest of us and the, and the reformers. So let's look. Here's our little equations. We, we saw these last week. If faith plus works produces justification and not, as we saw last week as the Orthodox gospel, we're justified by faith alone, but not by faith which is alone. If it's faith but works equals justification, then some critical questions follow. How many works actually make you perfect for heaven? What was lacking in Christ's righteousness that makes your contribution necessary to it? Doesn't Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler prove that sincerity is insufficient? Here's the young man that comes to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the law. If you want to get to heaven by doing, you've got to keep the law. And he says, I've done all these things since my youth. He really sincerely believed that and that clearly that wasn't enough. That wasn't enough. That isn't going to get you to heaven. It isn't faith plus works is what justifies us in God's sight. So J James immediately illustrates with Rahab as example number two of saving faith. Her faith is vindicated as real uh, by her actions, that is, harboring the Israelite spies. She risked her neck for this, but she had saving faith in her heart that produced this fruit. So James summarizes where he started. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the point we were making last week. We are justified by faith alone, but not by faith which is alone. True faith always works. It produces fruit. So faith and works go together like a living person is inseparably body and spirit. You don't have one without the other. Okay, so just a teensy bit of Review from last week, as we saw in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, this helps us, we help, we're helped by distinguishing the material cause of salvation, that is the righteous life and vicarious death of Jesus. You're saved by that, the righteous life and vicarious death of Jesus. The instrumental cause of salvation, the way that becomes yours, is through faith. You trust it. You believe what God says is true. God makes a promise. Whoever calls on the name of my son for forgiveness will be saved. You believe that. And at that moment, you're declared righteous in God's sight. Righteousness as a gift through faith. And then the evidence of salvation is the fruit of a new heart. Uh, and that is good work. So it's Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace, the material cause, you've been saved through faith, the instrumental cause, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Again, the material cause, God giving you this gift, God working this in us, not as a result of works that no one should boast. So no one is going to get to heaven and boast before God and say, yeah, Jesus did his part, but I added my part to it, and you shake and bake, put that in the oven, and out paps. Uh, out pops acceptance before God. No one's going to boast before God. We're all going to point to Jesus and say, there's my salvation, there's my righteousness, there's my only hope for standing in the presence of a holy God. 
And what a great hope it is, because he never lets down any who call on his name. You can be sure he will save you, because he offered a perfect salvation for you. His righteousness, his death are enough. They're sufficient. For by, and then Paul concludes, he doesn't stop there. He gets the rest of the equation in. So far we have faith produces justification plus works. For we are his workmanship, poema, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Uh, here's the evidence or the fruit which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right, so James 2 is important. He's not, I hope you see now, he's not contradicting Paul. We don't have all this confusion in the Bible. I'm sure if you read a Roman Catholic theologian, they would give you a different interpretation of what I've given you now. I'm trying to be as faithful as I can with the text. The key, as you see, is that Paul in, in Romans 4 and Galatians 3 and James in chapter 2 used justified in two different ways. James is not using it as a declaration of God's righteousness. He's using it as vindication, proved to be real. Okay? They, uh, Rahab and Abraham's faith is vindicated by these works. Faith brought these works to bear. They aren't the acts that made them righteous in God's sight. What makes you righteous in God's sight is trusting the acts of Jesus and the death of Jesus. All right, next week we will look at the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints because that's we're going to jump back there into... Romans 8, where Paul assures us that those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we want to look at how sure our salvation is. Look at the um, doctrine of the justification of perseverance of the saints. I'll stop screen share, and we probably have time for a question or a comment if anyone would like. So just speak, because I may not be able to see a hand if it's raised. If not, no problem. I'll be glad to pray for us. Are the two words justified the same in Greek? They are. They're the same word in Greek. I'd love it if it wasn't the case because it would make it easier. But Jesus in that Luke passage uses that same Greek word not to mean declared righteous, but to mean vindicated or proven to be real. Wisdom is, vind wisdom is justified by her deeds. Good question, Jim. Is this clear? Is this confusing? Have I made a decent case for it? Good, Melanie, thank you. Okay, I'd love to, I'd, unless somebody else, I'd love to pray for you all. And again, next week, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Okay, let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you and acknowledge that our interest in the word of God, our appetite for the truth, our heartfelt need for looking to Christ, trusting Christ, believing in Christ, seeing Christ is all sufficient for our salvation. It is your gift. It is your work. It is your doing. It is your grace. We would be lost dead in sins apart from your extraordinary kindness, sovereignly swooping into our lives, 
taking out a heart of stone, giving us a heart of flesh, opening our eyes and stopping our ears, creating in us this desire to be right with you, delivering us from all illusions of being self-made, self-justified. Oh, thank you that sovereign grace means faith, repentance unto life, our gifts. And of course they are gifts that change us because you know that sin is bad for us. You've saved us to deliver us from sin and to live a life pleasing to you. What could be better forgive us for giving into the insanity of sin, thinking that living for ourselves and self-indulgence is better than living for your glory. So create more and more in us this desire. And we thank you for this teaching from James, for your brother, Jesus, who needed to make this clear against the error of the antinomians. And may we be those who, when we see our brother in need of clothing, food, whatever, just like we saw with Charlie's illustration, our brother in need of fellowship or transportation, it was immediately offered, thank you. We saw this text in action in Charlie's testimony before we began. Thank you. May it be so of our lives. May we look at our hearts and scrutinize them. And Lord, may we have an insatiable appetite for the word of God, which is that which creates faith in us and strengthens faith. And so does taking risks, stepping out of our comfort zones and doing things where we have to trust you. This builds faith and trust. So thank you for my brothers and sisters. They are trophies of your grace. You love them. They are precious to you. You've looked upon them and given them a lively faith in Jesus. Would you continue through us to perfect these works, mature our faith as we have opportunity to harbor the spies as we have opportunity to offer up that which is dear to us. And we trust you for these things and pray we would live to the praise of your glorious grace. And now as we go to worship, give us grace to engage with you, to delight your heart with our praises, to hear the word of truth. May it be especially life giving today by the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all. Thank you so much. That was awesome.